Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Friday, May 15th. In today's news, the CDC puts out short reopening checklists after the White House blocks the release of substantive guidance. Senator Richard Burr steps down as chairman of the Intelligence Committee while the FBI investigates his stock sales. And an experiment shows human speech generates droplets that linger in the air for more than eight minutes. But first, the big idea. The consequences of the coronavirus pandemic may prove more devastating than the disease itself for the world's poorest countries. As the global economy hurdles into recession, people lose jobs by the hundreds of millions and the risk of hunger grows. For now, at least, COVID-19 seems to be largely a disease of the rich, developed world, with 74% of the 4.4 million cases reported worldwide occurring in North America and Europe, along with an overwhelming 85% of the deaths. But economists and UN officials say that it is in developing countries, where the vast majority of the world's population lives, that the most damaging long-term repercussions will be felt. International agencies have released stark figures in recent weeks, highlighting the risk that poverty and hunger could end up killing even more people worldwide than the 40 million victims that researchers had projected would die from the virus if no control measures were taken. Some 1.6 billion of the world's 2 billion informal workers, nearly half the global workforce, have already lost their jobs. 1.6 billion people. That's according to a new report from the International Labor Organization. They include gig workers in Western economies, but the vast majority are in developing countries, where most employment is informal, and so many families live hand-to-mouth, relying on a daily wage if they're able to eat at the end of the day. The loss of income for folks already living perilously close to the margins of survival— will propel up to 50 million people into abject poverty this year, according to the latest estimates from the World Bank. This reverses more than three decades of gains in the war against deprivation. A study by the United Nations says that 580 million people could become impoverished because of the coronavirus, meaning they lack the basic means of survival. And as incomes are lost, the World Food Program warns that a hunger pandemic could eclipse the coronavirus. 130 million people are expected to join the ranks of the 135 million people who were already expected to suffer from acute hunger this year, meaning that 265 million people in our world are at risk of starvation. The problem is actually not a shortage of food. The initial lockdowns triggered some short-term supply problems, and localized shortages of specific products have certainly pushed prices higher, putting vital foodstuffs such as meat and fruit beyond the reach of people without work. But the bigger problem is that people aren't earning enough money to eat or to eat properly. In India, half the workforce lost jobs overnight when the country imposed one of the world's strictest lockdowns and shut down public transportation networks. In Africa, 65% of the continent's population lives in crowded, informal settlements where social distancing is difficult, if not impossible. These are people who typically wake up in the morning, 
go out to look for money to buy food and then come back and eat their meal. A World Health Organization survey in Africa finds that 85% of those who have been forced to stay home because of the contagion are either skipping meals or eating less food because of the lockdowns. One of my colleagues in our Cairo bureau talked to a 41-year-old guy named Ismail Abdo, 41 years old. He earned a living ferrying tourists on the Nile in the Egyptian town of Luxor before the epidemic closed the airports there and brought tourism to a screeching halt. Ismail, his wife, his children, and his parents now survive on the $50 a month that his father receives in food aid from the Egyptian government. Barely enough for a family of eight to eat at all. The family stopped buying meat and fruits since the coronavirus arrived. Cheese, lentils, beans, and pasta are now the sum of their daily diet. Imagine trying to feed a family of eight on 50 bucks a month. Skimping on important foods can result in what experts call hidden hunger. Newly impoverished people respond by stopping the purchase of meat, dairy products, and fresh vegetables, which leads to lots of other health problems. Children who miss out on proper nutrients from things like meat can grow up stunted and with learning difficulties that will impede them for life. The UN Children's Fund warned this week, citing a study by the Lancet Global Health Journal, that the diversion of resources from existing public health programs to be able to focus on fighting the coronavirus could lead to as many as 1.2 million extra deaths, 1.2 million, among children under five years old over the next six months. 1.2 million extra deaths among children under five over the next six months. That's 6,000 kids a day dead. Many of the people most threatened by a lack of food live in countries in crisis, such as Syria, South Sudan, and Yemen, where conflict and displacement have already left tens of millions of people entirely dependent on food aid for survival. So far, the most dire forecasts of widespread coronavirus contagion in poverty-stricken countries have not yet materialized. India and Africa account for one-third of the world's population, but have reported only 3% of the coronavirus cases, a little more than 150,000 cases. Low testing rates will likely explain the lower case numbers, but not what seems to be lower death rates or the fact that hospitals and health systems are not being overwhelmed by large numbers of sick people in those places. In India and Africa, about 3% of those who have tested positive have died, compared to 6% in the United States. Many developing countries identified their first coronavirus cases later than in the West and locked down much more swiftly, helping to avert the surges experienced in Europe and the United States. Another likely factor is that populations in the developing world tend to be younger, much younger. The indications so far are that transmission rates are much lower in poorer and younger countries. The average age in many developing countries is up to 20 years younger than in the West. Although it is still too early to tell how the coronavirus will play out in poorer parts of the world, recent modeling suggests that Africa may experience a slow burn of infections rather than the dramatic peaks that have overwhelmed us and countries in Europe. It's important to have some global perspective because others have it worse than we do. For example, the hunt for a hospital bed in Brazil can last hours and many patients don't live long enough to see one. Brazil's failure 
to provide enough hospital beds for the surging number of critical coronavirus patients is yielding increasingly grim results across that country, but particularly in Manaus, a city of two million people on the Amazon River, deep in the rainforest. Two of our people and a photographer ventured there, and the dispatches and images that they sent back are almost apocalyptic. More than 2,000 people died in Manaus in April, more than four times the monthly average. Now, the city is running out of coffins. Hundreds are dying at home, either because they can't get treatment at the hospitals or because they fear they won't. Ambulances race down streets with no clear destination, waiting for someone to die and relinquish a hospital bed. As the pandemic moves into its next phase, pushing deeper into the poorer nations of Africa and Latin America, the possibility of expansion has been far more limited. In Brazil, which has registered more than 196,000 confirmed cases and more than 13,000 deaths, by far the most in the Southern Hemisphere, coronavirus patients are spending their final days waiting in chairs for help that never comes. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar as we end another hellish week in America and the world. Number one, with hundreds of millions of Americans still seeking advice on resuming their lives safely, the CDC issued a scant six pages of recommendations yesterday to guide schools, businesses, daycare facilities, and others into the next phase of the pandemic. The six one-page checklists, which also address restaurants, mass transit, and summer camps, come days and in some cases weeks after many states have begun to lift restrictions on their own. This advice is much less detailed than the draft recommendations the agency wanted to release and sent to the White House for sign-off last month. Our nation is still awaiting that detailed technical guidance, which the White House has held up and refused to share with the American people. The delay has left the responsibility for decision-making about reopening to states and localities. It has also left many health experts clamoring for greater transparency. The White House at first shelled the CDC guidelines and planned to release nothing at all. But when someone leaked them, the White House said they were overly specific and in the process of being revised. A CDC spokesman said last night that additional recommendations may still come from the agency. But with many states already moving on, it's unclear what impact additional recommendations might have. And the mixed messages from President Trump and other officials in his administration have left Local officials struggling with decisions, life and death decisions, on whether and how to relax restrictions. Trump has been pushing harder and harder in recent days for states to reopen. Yesterday, he even traveled to Pennsylvania to attack by name the Democratic governor for his stay-at-home order. His visit to that swing state in the presidential election came on the same day that he cheered what he called a, quote, win in Wisconsin where a court ruling against stay-at-home orders issued by another Democratic governor led to chaos and scenes of bars packed with people who were not socially distancing. The governor there, Tony Evers, says Wisconsin has become the Wild West. Trump's us-against-them language underscores the growing rift, not just with governors, but with federal scientists who continue to warn against lifting restrictions too swiftly amid a likely new wave of infections and fatalities. The CDC, the CDC documents were censored, our reporting tells us, by political appointees at the White House Office of Management and Budget. They were concerned that the initial draft was too burdensome on churches and restaurants. The CDC removed from the earlier draft of recommendations a guideline that said no facility should open in an area where the spread of the virus requires significant mitigation. 
They also refused to allow the release of a decision tree for faith leaders to decide when they should reopen churches. The White House said telling houses of worship how it makes sense to operate would not be constitutional. They also said that the CDC shouldn't be advising churches on what to do. A lot of churches would like that guidance. Number two, a burgeoning insider trading investigation scrutinizing members of the U.S. Senate led the chairman of its intelligence committee, Richard Burr, to step down yesterday after FBI agents seized his cell phone, seeking evidence related to stock sales he made after receiving classified briefings on the danger of the coronavirus, but before the pandemic crashed global markets. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell said Burr, a North Carolina Republican, will not wield the gavel so long as he remains under active FBI investigation. FBI agents, acting with approval from the highest levels of the Justice Department, served a search warrant for Burr's cell phone to his lawyer, and then they went to Burr's Washington-area home to take possession of the device. Investigators also obtained a search warrant to examine data on the senator's cloud storage for his iPhone. Burr's decision to surrender his role as chairman of the Intel Committee acknowledges the awkward, ethically fraught dynamic that would have existed if he had continued to lead a committee with oversight responsibilities for an agency involved in conducting a criminal investigation of his conduct. A person familiar with the investigation of Burr says investigators are examining the timing of his trades and any communications concerning stock sales that he may have had with his brother-in-law, his broker, and others. This person cautioned, however, that there are significant legal hurdles to bringing any charges in these kinds of cases, particularly because of the Constitution's speech and debate clause, which covers many of the activities of members of Congress. Number three, a new study shows that ordinary speech, just talking like I'm doing right now, can elicit small respiratory droplets that linger in the air for at least eight minutes and potentially much longer. This could help explain why infections of the coronavirus so often cluster in nursing homes, households, conference centers, cruise ships, and other confined spaces with limited air circulation. The new report from researchers at the National Institute of Diabetes and Digestive and Kidney Diseases, along with professors from the University of Pennsylvania, was published in a peer-reviewed journal, The Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. It's based on an experiment that used laser light to study the number of small respiratory droplets emitted through human speech. The answer is a lot. Louder speech produces more droplets. Singing produces even more, which explains why some of the earliest hotspots were started by choirs. I guess it's a good reason to talk less and smile more. Finally, looking for silver linings this week has been quite hard. Uh, This contagion, the coronavirus has now, as of this morning, massacred at least 85,160 of our fellow Americans. Yesterday alone, yesterday alone, 1,856 new deaths were reported from COVID-19 in the United States. 1,856. For context, 2,700 people were killed in the collapse of the World Trade Center. We cannot forget the very real human dimension of this tragedy at home and abroad. One of my colleagues who's been all over the coronavirus story from the beginning, Lena Sun, has lost her mother to COVID. We were told yesterday that we're not going to be allowed back into our newsroom until at least September. Testing is going to be essential to getting back towards something resembling a new normal. Some good news today is that easier coronavirus tests may be within spitting distance. 
A biologics firm announced yesterday that it has won emergency use authorization from the FDA for saliva tests that people can perform at home. Unlike tests conducted with nasal swabs, the saliva test does not require travel to a testing center, and there's no need for the swabs that have also been in short supply. It's just spit and mail to the Rutgers Clinical Genomics Laboratory, and results will come within 48 hours. Major research universities and their private sector partners are trying to leapfrog ahead of the next generation of tests. Scholars at the University of Colorado at Boulder have launched a firm called Darwin Biosciences. They're developing what they call the SIGSTIC, a device to measure the presence of the virus in saliva. Oklahoma State University, while awaiting FDA approval, is using saliva to test thousands of nursing home patients. And in Connecticut, scientists are working on a test strip that could be taken at home for immediate results without having to ship it to a lab at all, akin to a home pregnancy test. Our best and our brightest are doing all they can to help us innovate our way out of this crisis. That is our secret sauce. That's why America always has and always will emerge stronger from adversity. And that's The Daily 202 for Friday, May 15th. Thanks for listening. I'm James Homan. I'll talk to you next week.